calling all girl bosses. It's the motherfucking Schaefer Shakedown. Happy New Year! New Year, new COVID strain, new you! Omicron, somewhere in the middle America, it's tearing through everybody. Everything is canceled again. You better turn your ticket in, cause the shows are canceled. Omicron, yeah! Remind me not to improvise parody music ever again. What are you guys doing to completely transform your lives this year? Well, for one thing, I'm going to stop being such a dumb fucking bitch. That's for, oh, it's the top of my list. Uh, just kidding. I'm never going to stop being a dumb fucking bitch. But for real, I do. I do. I do love a New Year's resolution. Always have. I love making those lists. I know that people like to joke that New Year's resolutions never stick, but I don't care. I still do them. It's a chance to set your intentions. And I do love making lists. Um, Long-term goals, short-term goals, you name it. And so what? Even if your healthy eating habits only last two months or one month or even one day, that's one shimmering day of you eating vegetables. It's better than nothing. I'm serious. Now, I I will say that most years, uh, I get pretty specific with my resolutions. Um, uh, Stuff like sell a TV show or do 10 push-ups, which may sound like a joke, but no, for for me to do 10 push-ups would be a major accomplishment. I think I've only done five push-ups ever in a row, and it was one year where I had a personal trainer many years ago. Um, this year, uh, I'm not being so specific. I, uh, I'm just trying to give myself a very wide berth, you know? So the resolutions are much more vague. They're like, get through it or don't die. You know, um, (laughs) I'm not really writing anything down. I just have vague ideas. Um, I, I actually do have one detailed resolution and that is to lower my bad cholesterol. Yeah, I just went to the doctor for my annual physical a few weeks ago and I found out that the bad cholesterol is slightly elevated and I want to there's good cholesterol, I guess. My good cholesterol is fine. Actually, I think it's high, so that means it balance. She was like kind of balances it out, but you should keep your eye on that. So I want to stay on top of that shit. I don't want to get too far down the line and suddenly it's like a huge problem. Um, But that's about it. Right now, uh, maybe because I don't have any official gigs on the books, uh, because everything feels like it's on pause because of Omicron, the future feels very blank. God damn it. COVID. We're still in this shit. Just when I was starting to allow myself to really plan for the future again, like for real, especially when it comes to my stand-up, um, which was like the thing that I really put the most on pause during all this. Um, just when I'm right, making plans to get back out there, the shit hits and I think, you know, I think maybe, you know, had a little bit of a trauma response to it. Um And instead of like, 
going, you know, it's okay. You can, you know, we're still going to move forward. This doesn't ruin everything. I just sort of erased everything from my mind. It was just easier than to, to, to think about it. Like all the stuff I had planned for January, I just stopped thinking about it. And uh, I stopped like, you know, trying to get booked and to book some things. Um, cause I just was like, I'm just going to wait. I'm just right now trying to give myself permission to just relax a little. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I do make myself crazy during the holidays. So I earned a week or two of just getting back into the rhythms of the night and the days. Um, For Christmas week, we went to Richmond and uh, it was great. But with Omicron, of course, things got a little stressful. We were worrying about some potential exposures along the way. And, you know, and then I'd log on to Twitter um, and someone would be like, you know, people, a lot of people were like, you know, saying shit like, if you're traveling to see family right now, fuck you. You're literally a murderer. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of anger. People very upset. It's like, I'm, I am visiting my family. <laughs> like, sorry. Um, but then I'd see that. And then I'd go into a Target in my hometown and maybe half the people had masks on, um, which is, you know, I know it's different in different places, but in LA, you go in somewhere, everyone has a mask on. And so when you go somewhere else and not everybody's wearing a mask, you're like, it's like, oh, what's going on? Um, So it can be very disorienting to try and reconcile these two realities. And on one side, you have, you know, people who are like, I haven't left my house in two years. And then on the other, you have COVID isn't real. And I'm currently making a casserole for when JFK Jr. raises from the dead and comes to the potluck, you know. (laughs) And of course, on the side, I know I'm not both sidesing right now. I want to be clear. On the side of people who haven't left their house, a great number of those people have done so because they are immunocompromised or they live with someone vulnerable. Like they have a legit reason to not leave their house and to take this incredibly seriously, like more seriously than than most would. Um, and then on the other side they may not be immunocompromised, but they have been compromised, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Disinformation um, has gone into their brain. Maybe they've been compromised by their own selfishness or bigotry. Uh, I don't really know exactly how the cookie crumbles, but that's a real wide gap between those two realities in our country. And it's it's wearing on me, to be honest with you. Um, when Omicron started, I, I kept seeing people stay, say stuff like, we're back in March 2020 all over again. And I understand the crushing disappointment, the trigger that, that all of this has caused and the feeling of just complete, uh, just stress. Um, I felt it too, but I, I can't live like that. I can't say we're back in March 2020. Uh, I have to remind myself we are not where we were. It's not square one. First off, we have vaccines. We have treatments. And though, though, um, though many, many, many people choose to ignore 
most of it, we do have more knowledge than we did when this started. Uh, We have access to masks and tests. And though I understand not nearly on the scale that we need. Um, But, you know, I was able to buy a box of 50 CDC approved N95, which is the top tier level uh, for an everyday person to be able to get an N95 mask off Amazon. And I got them quickly in December. So, you know, which I could not have done in March 2020. So and I understand not everybody can do that. They don't may not have the money, you know, whatever, or the access. But that was an improvement. So I see, I personally see improvement. So I know we aren't in March 2020. Um, and I know it's still a nightmare and, and a tragedy. And it makes me sick when I think about how many people I, uh, how many people have died. I mean, it's just staggering and, and how desensitized we are to it. And, um, especially if you didn't personally lose someone like it, it's hard to comprehend the number, you know, um, and how many people have been permanently disabled by this disease or maybe not permanently, but they're still struggling two years later with a, a, a quote unquote cold that they got two years ago. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, the loss, not only of, of people, but experiences, livelihoods, relationships have been lost because of all of this. Um, the damage that it has done to us, to children, to the healthcare system, to our humanity. I mean, people who I consider really empathetic, loving people saying things, you know, and maybe, you know, on online things are lost in translation. There's tone that you don't get sarcasm. And as a comedian, I'm very aware that someone says something they don't really mean it but even in myself of just really wishing death upon people in a way that I really haven't before um you know certain people I'm talking like the really evil people out there I'm not I'm not wishing death on a random guy even if he's incredibly misinformed and I'm not one of those people that you know, believes the hospital should turn away the unvaccinated. I mean, I know it feels really unfair that an unvaccinated person is landing themselves to an extent. They got themselves into the situation. They made choices that led to them not being able to fight off a disease. And now they're overwhelming hospitals. Like, I mean, it's just such a mess. It's a it's a pandemic that has been put on our, on our individual shoulders. It's a nightmare. This whole thing is the worst catastrophe I can think of in my lifetime. And I was alive when MTV canceled my so-called life. (laughs) For me to get through the day, uh, I have to hang on to any shred of hope or positivity right now. And so, yes, having a box of N95 masks and the knowledge of how to wear them and why they are effective, yes, that makes me feel like we've made some progress and that there is some hope. And that'll make me feel okay for like five seconds. And then then I'll see a clip going around of Joe Rogan denying incredibly basic facts and straight up blaming fat people for COVID in the most hateful way imaginable. <laughs> and I'm screaming again. <laughs> so it's been a fun little roller coaster ride these past few weeks. Huh? How about y'all? You doing okay? <laughs> and honestly, like the 
all of that, okay, set all of that aside. And I actually think that one of the most stressful parts of this, maybe in be- because of that, adds to it, compounds, it's not so much that canyon I was describing between like the different lived realities between two extreme um, experiences. But on top of that, it's the tiny microscopic rifts in my very close day-to-day relationships. So like, and I'm pretty sure most people have experienced this, you know, you surround yourself, you know, your direct um, family, friends, whatever you consider your close inner circle. Um, Those people, I would assume, are people that I believe in basically the same things as you. You're basically on the same page. But even then, so even then within that, from one person to the next, you've got a slightly different set of rules, comfort level, sources of information, um, speed with which you get information, different routines of reading the news or whatever, different social media algorithms. You think, oh, well, my circle, we, we, you know, my pod, my family, my household, whatever, we all view COVID the same way. Well, when it comes down to it, really, do you? And that's when you find out in these, you know, surges, you find out, you know, even in my own marriage, we were pretty much in lockstep, Scott and I, um, about how we have handled the pandemic. But thank goodness. But we are still our own people. And of course, we have slight differences on what we feel comfortable doing and what we're reading online about how to manage all of this, how to stay safe. And when it's a question of something like, should we eat in this restaurant or whatever right now or or go on this trip or whatever, those tiny differences can become very stressful to navigate. You know, all of a sudden, you're, you're an aerosolized particle away from becoming the subject of a Dateline episode, you know, (laughs) just a just a molecule away. Uh, Anyway, coming off a few weeks of really feeling like we had lucked out on not getting COVID because we had traveled and been around family, even though we took precautions, you know, more strictly than most of the people around us. um, And and they worked. I mean, we got tested where we don't have COVID five days after six days after returning. Um, You know, you think, well, that's because we did it right. Well, did we? I mean, you have to wonder, what did we just get lucky? And, you know, we can never know. Um, You know, when I got my physical, I talked to my doctor about all this, the stress of it all. And she goes, you know, she said, you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. And obviously, you know, I would say that if you don't want COVID, if you want to ensure that you're not going to get it, don't leave your house and don't let anyone else in the pod leave the house. I mean, that's really the only way to ensure. Don't let anyone in or out. I mean, that's, you have to be in strict isolation if you don't want to get it. So every time you go out, you, yeah, there's some level of risk. And, but it's all about measuring risk, taking precautions and, you know, so then y'all, you know, God, you don't even want to hear about this shit. You're stressed about it too. I'm sorry. (laughs) I had to talk about it though. Woo. But I had a crazy week and all of that piled on top. You know, we were starting our way home from Richmond. We're on our first flight. They told us, um, they told us it would be bumpy because of thunderstorms in Atlanta. And then all of a sudden, about 20 minutes before we landed, there was a loud crack, like unmistakable flash of light. The plane jolts to the side. 
And uh, it was unmistakable. The plane had been hit by lightning. Like you just, I've never experienced that. And I was just like, the plane just got hit by lightning. Well, that's exactly what that was. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you see it, Scott was asleep. He woke right up and he was like, I mean, he knew exactly what it was. Everyone's looking at each other like, uh, the flight attendant, I noticed she got up and she did something like, I don't know if she looked out the window or checked on some safety thing, but she sat back down. She looked calm. So that told me like, okay, I guess we're fine. But the rest of the flight was very bumpy. So it got scary. You know, you're thinking, is the plane damaged? Are we going in for a crash landing? And they're just not saying anything as a last act of compassion. <laughs> like, tell me about the rabbits, George. Like, right before they break your neck. Like, they're, they're, that's why I always think, like, when it's a really bumpy flight or something weird is going on in a flight, I'm like, these flight attendants and the pilots, they're not saying a word. Because they know we're all about to die and they're just being so compassionate letting us know. Not by not letting us know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if people would do that, have the ability to do that. Who knows? So anyway, Scott and I were holding hands like Thumb and Louise. We were just ready to go over the cliff. <laughs> uh, but we landed safe to, safely. As far as I know, uh, I am not living in an alternate reality or the future. Um, the pilot came on and confirmed that yes, we had been struck by lightning and he explained that the plane was built to handle it, but it definitely gets your attention. And he said that in his, in his 40 years of flying, it had only happened 12 or 13 times. I thought 40 years, how old are you? And when did you start? <laughs> so it's pretty rare. Um, anyway, that felt unnerving and then we got stuck on the tarmac for an hour and had to run i mean run full speed through the airport which sucks to make the connecting flight which we were like convinced we weren't going to make it but we're like we gotta try we, there's still time <laughs> run so we're doing it we're running and we're both double masked okay now when i say we were double masked and you're gonna maybe laugh at how crazy we went with the mask we we had kn95s over n95s I mean, that might be overkill. I actually don't know if that's recommended. <laughs> it is very, it does, you feel it. You're like, I'm not really getting enough oxygen, am I? Um, but running, running with that on, really not a good idea, especially if you're out of shape <laughs> and you have elevated bad cholesterol. Uh, I really did. I had to rip the outer one off because I felt like I was going to pass out. Um, but we made it. We were like, you know, you run up to the gate and you see there's like two people getting their uh, boarding passes scanned. And you're like, yes, we did it. Uh -huh. um, but of course, when that happens, a big chance your bags aren't going to make it. Nope. The bags did not run through the airport. They took their sweet old time. And normally if I'm on my way home, I mean, it rarely happens, but. I fly so much. It has happened. Um, really, rarely, uh, you know, if, if my bags don't come, they just drop it to your house, whatever, the next day. Um, if you're traveling to somewhere and they don't arrive, that's a whole other story. It's very annoying. And that has happened to me. But one of the bags got lost for like four or five days. And I had to be on the phone with Delta for hours trying to track it down. It was very, that was very annoying. So I had that happen. And then the bag shows up and it's soaking wet. Like everything is just wet and smells musty. And I was like, oh God, to wash everything, um, which is fine. Nothing was ruined. Um, 
And we just had other little mishaps over the past. Just nothing catastrophic, but just like bad luck. Like, you know, just like, fuck, man, now I got to deal with this for a couple hours. Like whatever it was, you know, our apartment flooded. Like, thankfully nothing damaged. But it was always, it was stuff that was like, oh, this sucks. But gosh, it could have been worse. Thank God. And then for a moment you feel lucky, even though what happened was bad luck. Anyway, it just all of it has made me very anxious, irritable as fuck. I'm over it. I'm just done. Like one time yesterday, I just left. I was like, I'm out. <laughs> like something we were talking about our COVID tests, which we got done yesterday. Like a home service came, drops off the kit, and you got to do it in front of somebody on your phone on FaceTime. And it was a throat swab, which I didn't wasn't expecting. Not a nasal one, which I'm used to now. It was a throat one where you have to basically make yourself gag, like a strep throat test. Fuck. This poor person has to watch you do that? No. That's a shitty job. I hope they get paid properly. <laughs> anyway. <sighs> uh, maybe there's a lesson here, you know, about running myself threadbare around the holidays, you know, that and then it, it, it all comes crashing down in a week of chaos. You know, it's a lesson that I will surely forget completely come next November. <laughs> You can quote me on that. So I'm heading into 2022, ready for the winds of change to blow on through here. In the meantime, uh, I'm just trying to take a few days to nourish myself as best I can to recover from the past few months and stay safe physically and mentally during this new surge. So I'm eating well for the most part. I'm playing piano every day. I bought a beautiful electric piano. More on that in a future episode. I'm going on walks. I'm doing some light garden work. Uh, garden update coming soon. Don't worry. But first, um, so this episode, and now we're, we're getting into it now, uh, into the meat of this episode, I uh, want to focus this week on the world of Etsy. So if you're someone who makes stuff, you may or may not have opened an Etsy shop um, but most people have at least shopped on Etsy and you're aware of what Etsy is. Um, I have had my Etsy shop, Bobo's Nook, if you want to check it out, uh, since 2018. And it started in part because I had come up with this idea for merch for my comedy um, from one of my stand-up jokes, which was about those live, laugh, love signs, um, which in the joke I call inspirational quotes on rustic pieces of driftwood in multiple fonts. And I thought, what better way to sell merch than to make one of those signs that literally says that, that says inspirational quotes on resume. And it's a, it's a meta joke thing inspired by my own joke. And it's, I can make a small version of it that would be, um, that people could take with them um, and be funny and be like actually from my act. And I, I had to like, brainstorm how to do it. I, I got a custom stamp made of it. And then I would just stamp that onto a piece of wood, make a little ornament. And then I'd sell that with what's known as a drop card, which is like a little, I still have this for sale on my Etsy, by the way, a little credit card that has a download code for my album with that. I don't know if people actually want it for the album, but it's there. It's part of it. Um, it's wrapped up in the price. So thank you for supporting me <laughs> if you bought one. And it worked well. I mean, I, I sell for cheap. It's like $17 for the ornament and the album. Um, so it started with that and then expanded to uh, small embroidered items, custom made stuff. And mainly these past few years, I've really just focused on nothing new except uh, at Christmas time, I do a drop of ornaments, different cute 
um, funny ornaments. Um, but all of these, uh, my top selling item is these uh, two little tiny hoops that have the word fuck, like that spread out over two hoops. Um, like you're so fed up that one fuck won't fit on the hoop. That was kind of how I described it. Um, and it's been really fun, and but uh, like a big learning curve, a lot. Uh, it, I don't, it's not my living. It's just a side thing that I do. But I will say, full disclosure, I have made over the course of the three years, I checked my stats yesterday, total, since I founded the shop, I've made $16,000 in revenue, which, uh, not bad, huh? Not bad at all. And um, I would say now that I'm doing the ornaments, um, the ornaments be, are becoming the bulk of that money that I've made. And um, it's really nice to like put the work in and then make a little side money every Christmas that I use for travel, getting gifts. It just it takes off the stress of like, am I spending too much um, on Christmas this year? It's like, well, this adds uh, just pads things and makes it um, fun to do. And I, and I was able to buy myself that piano, which is something I've been dreaming of doing for a really long time, like 20 years. So um, that's been great. But uh, so that's just to give you an idea of numbers. Now, if you're thinking about opening an Etsy shop, um, I just think there's some things that you should ask yourself first. One, do I like organized chaos? Yes, you should like organized chaos. It needs to be organized, though. Okay, if if, if you if you enjoy just pure chaos, I don't know if you're going to be able to handle it. But if you like organized chaos and it's something you're comfortable with, that's a good start. Number two, do I love shipping? <laughs> and because I asked the, the I the, the, ask yourself this because. Um, I think people think, oh, I'm going to make stuff and you might be really crafty. You might be a very creative person, but do you have the brain to also be able to handle the shipping element, which is, you know, Etsy makes it pretty easy. Click, you know, it, it, it's very streamlined, but you know, you got to get the shipping supplies. You got to put the stuff in the thing. You got to tape it up. You got to drop that off at the post office. You know, it's, it's another whole other thing. And so if you don't want to mess with that, you know, maybe Etsy's not for you. Okay. Um, number three, uh, do I have all the materials needed to complete my orders right now? Okay. This is probably one of the biggest things I learned right away. And I've learned it several times over. And now I just, I know, make sure you have the materials you need to fulfill the orders before listing the item number you know okay so when you list a handmade item you select the quantity available so you can say oh there's going to be five of these little things i'm making there are five available five are for sale when they sell out they sell out well you can always add more but that's what you're rolling out uh my thing is to make sure you physically already have the supplies needed to make that quantity okay because even if you think oh i'll just buy more off amazon or Joanne's, if I keep selling them, I don't want to limit. What if 50 people suddenly want it and I and it's sold out and they can't buy it and then I lose out on the money? Well, no, because right in the middle of your big order, you will discover that they stopped making the tiny wood sign you need to make the ornament with the inspirational quote on it in multiple fonts, <laughs> which is something that literally happened to me. You know, now people are expecting something that you don't, you can't fulfill. 
So either you have to make it look different than it looked on the website and then you have to contact them and be like, it's, oh, I'm sorry, I ran out of the thing. Are you okay if it looks like this? And um, it's a mess. I, I've This has happened to me a few times and I'm, you know, to the point where, you know, because I, I, I get dollar signs in my eyes and something's selling out quick. I'm like, oh, I'll just up the quantity to 75. Let's let it rip, you know. And then I'm freaking the fuck out driving to every Joann's in a hundred mile radius looking for the thing I need to try and get it shipped on time. (laughs) Just be careful with that is all I'm saying. Number four, do I love treating my family like sweatshop workers? (laughs) If the answer is yes, good, good. Um, I know some people may not have family or friends available to them. But that, that's part of it. I mean, I think, think about the labor, the time, how much time do you have to get these things done? Because that's another thing on Etsy, you can, you can set it to be like ships in one to two days. If it's a made to order thing, you can set it for longer. Like my custom orders, I do give myself four to six weeks so that they don't expect me to get that shit done overnight because it's not my full time job. Um, so, you know, what, how long, how much work is it going to take? Do you have time? Do you have anyone to help you? Do you, will you have to pay them? <laughs> so last year when the ornaments I posted, uh, they sold, I maybe posted 10 each of like four different ones. They sold out in like 30 minutes. And I was like, wow, that's fast for something I put out. So Scott was like, hey, we should sell more. Can you get more? And I was like, yeah, I can get more. There's on Amazon. They can come, you know, in two days, you know, like I can. So he's like, well, let's sell as many as we can. And I'll help. He's like, and I'm like, but that's gonna be so much work. He's like, I'll help. I'll help. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And, you know, I thought, okay, I'll do the stitching, the embroidery. And I would stitch like 30 ornaments on a single piece of big fabric and then cut that all out. And Scott would position the little circle into the hoop and glue the back and, and put the string and the the bows, the finishing touches on it. And I, I realized quickly, though, that even though it was sounded like a good plan. It, it was. It has worked. But just some things we learned is that, like, uh, you know, he, he has a good eye for design and art. But I did have to do quality checks on what he was doing because it's not his project. It's mine. My standards are going to be higher than his because he's just going through it. And I'm, I had to keep telling him, I'm like, it needs to look exactly if not better than the one that is listed. So I'd have like sample ones. I'm like, it has to look exactly like this one. And I'd be like, move the bow up one millimeter. It's not right, you know. Um, and it, it gets a little stressful, all right? Um, because, you know, one ornament that was clearly the best seller, and I, I only had a limited amount of hoops in that shape, which goes back to your, the question of supply, you know. So these little hoops that I put this stuff in, the ornaments in, they only sell them in packs of six, six different shapes. So each pack you get like one large round one, one small round one, one oval horizontal, one small oval, you know, it, it's like six different sizes. And so to get the one that was very popular, I'd have to buy a full pack. And I had all of these excess. Um, so I had to keep ordering these packs of hoops and they're not that expensive but like I just don't want anything cutting into the profit like I'm always looking I'm like looking I wait for the deals at Staples to get the shipping tape on cheap I know where to get you know um, the padded envelopes I know where to get them cheapest we we save every padded envelope that comes in the mail I save it and I reuse it 
you know, I, I'm good at like, I don't want any money cutting into the profit. So having to buy all these hoops, I'm like, well, I'll just next year, I'll use my or I'll use these leftover ones and end up and which is what we did. It worked well. But anyway, um, but last year when I was like not having supply on hand, you know, if Scott fucked up one of them or broke it, I would just go crazy because I'd be like, now I have to buy a whole nother pack of these things. You had like and I didn't have any extras and it just got a little crazy last year. And I just go into a rage and sometimes Scott would just get distracted, you know, and he he didn't mean to, but he would be in the zone and he would get distracted. Because he would start listening to his best friend, which is what I call the podcast he listens to, his best friend. Um, it's a wrestling podcast with this guy, Jim Cornette, who I've actually come to consider uh, a member of our family because his voice is always present in our home. <laughs> Luckily, uh, he I like his voice. He has this southern accent, and I, I like... I like the way he talks. It's just something I don't mind being around. And um, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about, but I do like, don't mind it. Of all the podcasts that he could be listening to, this one is fine. I mean, you know, thank God it's not another comedian pod. It's not a comedian's podcast because that's just, no, no, <laughs> there's no, there's only room for one comedian <laughs> in our house, <laughs> which is why I can't, uh, no. Uh, anyway, sometimes Scott would get a little distracted listening to his best bud and uh, he'd realized, you know, oh, he'd glue the wrong bow on for ornaments or whatever. So, you know, and then like there would be scheduling things where I'm like, he's like, I'm going to get to it. I'm like, but I need it now. The orders are due. Get back to work. I'm pacing around the table, hovering over him like I'm a boss at a sweatshop. And if you didn't do it right, I like hit him with a stick, you know, <laughs> I'm like, get back to work. I have customers and a reputation to uphold. I have a perfect five-star rating on Etsy. And I'm not going to let Jim Cornette ruin that. <laughs> That's true, though. These ornaments aren't mass-produced pieces of crap. They are handmade with the purest of love, and the final presentation must reflect that. That is what my customers have come to expect from me. The Bobo's Nook guarantee. <laughs> um and you know just the price like i'm like somebody paid 25 dollars for this we gotta make it worth it you know which comes to my next question okay pricing ask yourself am i prepared for people to complain about my prices now any artist trying to sell their work will tell you Many people absolutely do not understand the value of art or handmade items they just do not and I, it's not really their fault. I blame capitalism and the infinite availability of cheap and fast goods. Um, you combine that with most people's, you know, I could make that attitude. And uh, which I totally get. I've talked about that in the last episode. Um, but my Lord, it makes people very entitled. And I see artists posting about this stuff a lot. And it's infuriating because, you know, I'm lucky to have only dealt with it a few times. Um, and it might be because I'm I'm marketing my wares, my handmade wares to a specific audience that views me as a comedian uh, and personality that perhaps they want to support in a larger way, which adds to the perceived value of my Etsy items. Um, the fact is, though, that many people just don't want to pay an artist what they're worth. And I, I get it as a consumer, 
because handmade stuff and art is usually very expensive and that makes it less accessible to an everyday person. But um, our expectation for it to be really cheap is very problematic, you know. Um, my ornaments run from like $15, $12, $15 to $25 to $30, or not just ornaments, but my, any item in my shop. So they're not, I'm not talking like crazy expensive stuff here, but one of the ornaments this year simply said, tax the rich. A nice little addition to any Christmas tree, if you ask me. Well, of course, I, I, I should have anticipated this. I, I know people, they complained like, oh, the irony of this tax, of a tax the rich ornament costing $25. Ah, yes, the irony of it. It's so ironic. You're right. I am getting rich off these ornaments. I am a rich person exploiting people with this racket, this ornament racket. You know, I'm an Etsy billionaire, which is similar to a tech billionaire. But instead of using your billions to build yourself a spaceship, you use your billions to build yourself a craft island. Like, I'm not talking about an island made of wood, like a kitchen island. I'm talking a literal island dedicated to crafting. That's uh, every single type. Think of it. Uh, yeah. Every single type of crafting can be done on this island. Uh, top of the line tools, state of the art studios, around the clock resort amenities. You just get to craft all day in a luxury setting. Anyway, yeah, yeah, it's ironic because I am. I'm an Etsy billionaire. And not only that, I'm not paying taxes. That's right, you chumps. I'm laughing my way to the craft island while you morons are paying me for it. Suckers! <laughs> like, what? No. No, it's just me and my husband in this little apartment. And we're not, we're not making... We're paying taxes, first of all. Our fair share. And, and I understand that for many people, $25 for an ornament is just not something they can afford which is why I always offer some cheaper options for anyone who can afford those. Um, but that is how much these ornaments cost. Bottom line, sorry. That's how much they cost. That's the value I've put on them. The supplies that, that it takes to make them, the actual time to make each one, add that to, not, uh, to the years that it took to become skilled enough to make these and develop practices that make them look good, as good as they do. Um, the decades of me being a writer and a comedian and a creative person that I can come up with these ideas. Um, you know, when I started four years ago, it took me forever to just figure out how to make them look good. And I'm faster at it now and can produce more because of those early years of being slow and practicing. People are always against capitalism until they are asked to forego those cheap labor prices, right? <laughs> I can express my distaste for capitalism and wealth inequality while also having to survive and exist within that system, okay? It's just like stuff like that gets under my skin because I don't know if people understand how hard it is as an artist to to just think that you're worth anything at all mentally, to think that your work is valid, the decades it takes to feel confident in what you do, and then after all that, to figure out how to demand fair compensation for it. I mean, I can't speak for all, but I know most creative people struggle with this, this internal battle. And when we finally get there and are able to formulate what our work is worth and we can demand those prices and people pay them, 
we have to always deal with some shitbird coming along and making us feel guilty for it. Which leads me to the final question you should ask yourself. Am I prepared to pander to my audience in exchange for profit? <laughs> now, now, you may not have to do this, but I have struggled to reconcile the fact that what I personally like and, and to make and my personal taste is not necessarily aligning with what sells best, right? So I have always been an embroidery purist, traditionalist, I guess is what I would say. Um, when it comes to my personal tastes, I love retro, vintage, extreme granny core cross stitch. Like I collect vintage cross stitch patterns and I love them. Um, you know, but uh, that is not what sells. Okay. Uh, my standards from a writing perspective are high. Okay. I write comedy. So the work I put out there is not going to be your granny core stuff. It's, it's just not what my audience even would expect from me. They don't really come to me for a cross stitch of a teddy bear wearing a bow tie. All right. <laughs> they want my stuff to be funny. And well, how do you make embroidery funny? Bottom line, most people think it's funny when you embroider a cuss word. God, you people love it. When your average person sees the word fuck spelled out in thread, they lose their goddamn minds. And for a while, this I did too. This was actually an edgy and legitimately funny thing to do because embroidery and cross-stitch is such a traditional feminine, um, old lady um, you know, sometimes associated with religious stuff. You know, it's a, it's an art form that is rife for subversion. So sub, people call it subversive cross-stitch is, I guess, the uh, layman, the everyday term for this type of thing. Subversive cross-stitch, it, it was subversive for a long time, but now it's not subversive anymore because it's everywhere and it's gotten tied up in the whole girl boss, pussy hat, nasty woman craze, right? It's getting a little chuggy. And I honestly don't love it, but it is what sells. For me personally, it's not what I would put up in my home, but it is what sells. And I'm not judging it because like, look, I, I come up with my ideas and I just put my own spin on it as best I can. And I make it as original as I can. I'd still have a standard. Okay. Um, but, you know, again, it's not my favorite. It reminds me of, um, remember the Portlandia sketch, put a bird on it. It's like that, but now it's more like put a fuck on it. Put a fuck on it. People love it. Um, sure. Uh, I try. I, so what I was saying was I try to be original. And then sometimes I'm just borrowing like a kind of common phrase from the, um, from the zeitgeist, like tax the rich. Very something of the moment. And I'm presenting it in a new and funny way. You know, it's funny to put an ornament like that on your Christmas tree right? Which in and of itself, the Christmas tree has become a symbol of capitalism. So it is, uh, there's something to that to me that feels a little funny and winky wink. So I'm not saying that I'm not proud of my work, like of this stuff. It's just, again, like it's not my favorite. Um, but this year I was like, you know, I, just, I don't, I don't want to do that again, really. Um, so I tried to offer like in terms of the curse words, like cussing, so I, I I tried at first to offer mostly clean 
or more wholesome options and they just weren't selling as well. <laughs> so as a joke, I just tweeted like, you know, what do you people want from me? An ornament that says eat my ass. And of course, a lot of people are like, yes, that is exactly what we want. Please make it available as soon as possible. <laughs> so I made an eat my ass 2021 ornament. And yeah, that is very zeitgeisty. Yeah. And it sold well. And it's like, God, okay, even that phrase to me already feels cliche. And sure enough, I felt a little bit like I was pandering, like I was kind of selling out a little with that. And sure enough, literally two days ago, the PBR beer, Pabst Blue Ribbon Twitter account tweeted, a corporate Twitter account tweeted this. They tweeted, not drinking this January, try eating ass. (laughs) I mean, when PBR is tweeting about it, you know a phrase is losing its sheen, okay? (laughs) I don't think I'm putting anything out there that's, you know, incredibly hacky or beneath me in terms of the words I'm stitching. They're just at the lower end of what I consider my best work. So, um, and I think I'm sensitive to it because in the comedy world, people will accuse each other of pandering to their audience, appealing to their audience's baser instincts, you know, their worst qualities. Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I, I could argue that I'm pandering to my audience's desire, base desire for sassy, cussy embroidery. <laughs> uh, but I would say that that's better than you know, pandering to my audience's racism, right? <laughs> everyone, everyone panders at some point, you know, and it reminds me of this Bill Hicks bit. Um, I'm going to read the, read it to you because I'm not sure if I'm allowed to um, play the audio <laughs> for copyright stuff, but um, he says, there are dick jokes on the way, ladies and gentlemen, please relax. Feeling a little tension in the room here. Ah, he hasn't told any dick jokes. Doesn't he know he's in America? Doesn't he know about our puritanical self-hatred of our own body and its desires? The only way we can find relief is through the medium of penis material? Yeah, I'm totally aware of where I am. Don't worry. The dick jokes are on their way. Here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. I editorialize for 40 minutes. The last 10 minutes, we pull our shoots and float down to Dick Joke Island together, okay? And we will rest our weary heads against the big, thick, vein trunks of dick jokes while we sit in our big, cushiony, beanbag scrotum chairs and giggle away the dawn like any good American comedy club. <laughs> oh, I love that joke. Look it up if you can so you can listen to the audio. Um, and he's right though, you know, Uh, but I do every, okay. I have to little tangent here because as a female comedian, I can't help it. But when I hear this, I just a slight wince of pain sometimes. And I think, uh, is the double standard. Cause I, I replaced the word in my head. I replaced the word dick with vagina and it doesn't work, you know, vagina jokes. Because the prevailing negative attitude towards female comedians, when there is a negative attitude, it often revolves around how we all we do is talk about our vaginas. We only talk about sex. You know, meanwhile, dick jokes in this bit from, I believe, the 90s, either late 80s or early 90s, is presented as the crowd pleaser, the baseline, what we are all waiting for and desiring. More dick jokes, please, you know. 
Um, and he's making fun of the audience for wanting that. And there's a lot to that that I love, obviously. I wouldn't have told, talked about it if I hadn't. But the thing is, when a man does an hour of jokes about dating, sex, masturbating, etc., maybe he'd be classified as blue. But he wouldn't be told, you know, not don't do that. Mm, don't do an hour of, of jokes like that. But even if a woman does an entire clean hour clean hour about dating relationships etc but if she says vagina once during that hour it's like all she talks about is sex oh my god and it's not blue it's dirty the terms are being different for whether we're talking about men or women and the messaging the messaging against this is pretty constant you know through my 20 years of doing comedy um after my first album came out um I would say probably 2014 forward, I moved away from like that older material and started doing new material. And most of it, vast majority of it was not about sex. I mean, in, in fact, there might have been almost none and almost none about relationships. Um, it was about other stuff. And I noticed something change after that. Uh, more and more often uh, after shows, people would come up to me and go, Oh, I'm so glad you just didn't, you're not like the other female comics. You know, I'm so glad you didn't talk about your vagina or your body for an hour. And, I, you know, like the other female, I don't like it when female comedians do that. And I just, I hate when people do that. But I've even had industry professionals say this to me. Um, people who are powerful in TV and considered woke uh, and really with it, Um they have praised me for not talking about sex in my act, which is so insulting, first of all. One, it's insulting to the other women who are doing that because who cares? As long as you're original in your point of view and you're funny and you're doing your best work that you're able to do and your audience likes it, who cares? And two, can't you just compliment me without tearing down another woman can't you just compliment me without even comparing me to another woman? Leave that out of it. God, for once, I'd love someone to be like, God, you're my favorite comedian. Not, you're my favorite female comedian. I mean, Jesus. When is that going to end? <laughs> I don't think it, I don't know if it ever will. Um, I, I also hate these types of comments, especially from industry people, because it is a real mind fuck. I mean, I seem very evolved about it right now, but come on. I'm human. In the moment, you know, you, at first you want to take the compliment. You're like, oh, I'm getting praise from a high-powered producer, someone that could make or break my career. Ooh, you're so parched for that kind of feedback that you don't care if the water has the faint taste of misogyny, you know? <laughs> you're like, give it to me. <laughs> but the compliment, it it's insidious because it feels like a warning too, right? Because it's like, so for instance, one time when this happened, I wanted to say to the person like, uh, well, don't listen to my first album, okay? Because a lot of sex on that one. <laughs> a lot of body stuff. And because they, they assume that that night that they saw you not talk about your vagina for 15 minutes, that you never talk about it. They put you in a box. Um, they put you in a box box. That's a vagina joke. Um, but what would have happened if that night I had pulled out an old joke? You know, about sex. Like... 
what, would I be dismissed completely? Put in the other box box? Okay. The, the un, are you in the box box or are you in the not box box? I don't know if that's working. <laughs> and it's confusing too because on one hand, you're getting a message of do not talk about that. Stop. But then on the other hand, when you look at which female comedians are making the most money and are the most famous, a very large percentage of them openly talk about sex and dating all the time. In fact, and I I include dating because the reason I include dating is because um, I think a lot of times women comics are doing jokes that they consider to be about dating, but people will perceive them as sex. Um, whereas when a man does uh, dating jokes that involve sex and stuff, they aren't labeled as sex jokes. They're labeled as relationship and dating jokes. That's the only reason I'm there's there's a weird double standard there, too, Um because sex is part of dating and honestly, like, you know, I understand that there's acts that are more blue that, you know, get into the nitty gritty of sex. Um, but you can tell a really kind of scandalous sex joke. I have a few that don't use any curse words, um, but they're very advanced sexually. So, you know. Um, okay, so what I was saying is I have noticed that when you look at which female comedians are making the most money, you know, uh, they are openly talking about, a lot of them are talking about sex in their act, a thing we're not supposed to talk about. In fact, some of them have oriented like their entire brand around it. Many of them have titled their special something sexual or referring, you know, innuendo or whatever. Um, And all of that is fine. But it, it contradicts the, we don't like that. Don't talk about that. Okay, well, it's clearly something that a lot of people enjoy. If these people are able to make that much money and sell that many tickets, and I mean, I enjoy it many times too. If it's a joke I like, I love it. Who cares? These women are at the top of their game and they're just as good as any of the men out there on their level. And I, I'm I'm not naming names here because I'm I just want to speak generally and and not accounting for you know personal taste because I hate that like when you talk about a specific comic then people are like well I don't think that person's funny and they stop listening to you uh, so I'm trying to make a point more generally because as we know comedy is subjective and what's funny to me may not be funny to you blah 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 but it's 2022 people 10 20 30 years ago women comedians were getting famous while talking about their vaginas unapologetically, okay? This is not new. You know, it's not like suddenly in 2022 or 2021, someone does a vagina joke and it's like, oh, oh dear Jesus in heaven, I never. Like, that's not happening. Relax. (laughs) So why do people still act like it's shocking? It's not. It's kind of this double-edged sword, I think. Um, You're told not to do it, you know, in different ways, literally or indirectly. Um, But it also seems to work really well and people love it. It's really taboo and you're considered brave, quote unquote, big quote marks, brave to be talking about these topics that no one will talk about. But then I'm constantly told that it's the only thing female comedians talk about. Like, which is it? (laughs) It's not uniquely brave, in my opinion, to talk about sex on stage anymore. It's just not. It's thankfully 
very normal. Um, since I've started 20 years ago, like it's way more normal. But even when I started, it seemed normal to me. Like, I'm like, have you been to a comedy club? <laughs> like, and, and yeah, every comedian is talking about basically a, a basic set of topics like relationships, dating, um, food, travel, life, you know, common shared experiences. And, you know, um, so do I think it's brave to talk about sex on stage? Not really. But you have to acknowledge that there are there's this other competing message, which is women comics are given shit for doing that. So, yeah, in a way, you're pushing against that if you are doing it in some way. Sure. Um, I do think it's brave to just do stand-up comedy on some level, no matter what you're talking about. It's scary to get up on stage and put yourself out there like that. So there's that. But talking about sex as a woman nowadays, like I said, it's just very normal to me. It's like any other topic on stage. And that's progress. Um, some sex jokes are hilarious. Some are meh. Some are downright hacky. Just like some jokes about crafting are hilarious. Some are meh. And some are downright hacky. Like, we are all in our own fight to write the best jokes we can about the stuff we want to talk about. And we are all figuring out who our audience is and what pandering might mean for me might mean something totally different for someone else. Just a little side side note here. There's a, there's a distinction of women. There's, there's another layer, a, a little insidious layer to this with women comedians, which is there's the distinction of women talking about sex versus or in combination with women trying to be sexy as a comedian, be sexy on stage in their in their uh, public presence, whatever, which for women, it's a whole other minefield that I don't really want to get too much into it today, to be honest with you. But it is all wrapped up in this too, because I, I say this because some people think that if you're a woman talking about sex on stage, well, you must be doing that for the attention of men. You're just trying to be, come off sexy to the men. You know, you're doing it for the purpose of being attractive to men. That's why you're talking about sex. Like, you know, that must be why she's doing that. She's trying to be sexy. And they don't like that. People think that you shouldn't be doing that as a female comedian. You shouldn't try to be sexy in any way. Pick a lane, okay? Which is ridiculous because why do men get on stage? Hmm? Is it perhaps to get laid? <laughs> I mean, that's an old stereotype, but uh, come on. To act like men don't do all of these things is absurd. That they don't talk about sex all the time and that they don't try to get use their stage presence and their platform to get laid is crazy and doesn't really work for women comics i don't think our being a woman comic doesn't really get you laid <laughs> the way that it does for men it just doesn't um you know but I'll just say this. I think all of this policing of women comics, what they say, what they wear on stage, how they brand themselves, it really just goes back to what some people truly feel still to this day, which is that the comedy stage is just not for women. And some people just don't want to, no matter what you say or do up there, they will always think that you shouldn't be up there at all. There will just always be some portion of the population that just, whether they recognize it or not, they don't want you up on that stage. They don't like it. Maybe because they just don't want to hear a woman in a position of power over you. I don't know. 
And as a woman in this business, I feel like I'm trying to get through one of those hall of lasers, trying not to get tripped up in my own insecurities, my own biases, my own frustrations, and the pressures coming from all directions. Because yeah, sometimes I see a female comic posing nude, and I'm like, get it, girl? And then other times I'm like, well, fuck, should I be showing a little more skin? What the fuck are we doing? You know, so to admit that is even a struggle. Like, I don't I don't like admitting that those feelings bubble up because it makes me feel guilty. Like, I'm not being a good feminist, uh, good supporter of other women comics. It's not personal. It's just that I have to remind myself that what I'm feeling is normal. I didn't create the system that I'm in. Um, and no wonder I feel this way. I know there isn't a woman peer of mine that I have met that doesn't at some point wrestle with that same thing I just described where it's like where you're having to consider your personal appearance and your sex appeal as part of your career you at some point it it will come up and bite you in the ass in some way shape or form and uh it's it's a lot of times it's a very confusing conflicting feelings um so other lady comics they get it Dude comics, I uh, I don't really want to hear that shit from them. I don't really want to talk to them about this stuff. Because, you know, when a dude comic will, you know, sometimes talk shit to me about a female comedian who talks about sex a lot or too, quote unquote, too much. Or they, like, did you see the naked picture she posted? You know, what the fuck? Like, what? You know, and look, even though I just admitted I have conflicting feelings about that stuff sometimes... Um, even if I hate this particular woman's guts because she's a bully behind the scenes who would happily throw other women under the bus, not naming names, <laughs> I will still, I will defend her to this dude comic in the, the, I will defend her to a dude comedian or just anyone really, um, who isn't part of my inner circle. I will defend that bitch like she's my own sister. Like she's my blood. Because these dipshits need to learn. Okay? Even internal, even if internally I am like, drag her. <laughs> I'll be like, hey, uh-uh. <laughs> Bottom line, I guess what I'm saying is that I wish, I just wish that when people speak to or about women comics, they would give us the same leeway that men get. Every comedian sometimes has to pull the chute and float down to dick joke, or in this case, pussy joke island. Sometimes you got to cross-stitch the word cunt, and you know you like it. Everybody does. <laughs> okay, whoa. Speaking of islands, we need to get back to Craft Island. Uh, we have left it for too long. Um, finally, finally, uh, my final question. If you're thinking about starting an Etsy shop, ask yourself this question. Would you do it anyway, even if it didn't pay? To quote Jillian Welch. Um, if the answer is yes, and I say go for it. Have fun. Now, for me, I had an easier time getting mine going because now I just, you know, as a full warning and disclosure here, I did have, you know, I throw out a number like 16 grand, you know, that ain't chump change. But I want to manage expectations because, you know, I definitely, uh, 
I had the advantage when I started my Etsy of having already built a platform for myself with um, my career in comedy. So I had a bigger audience and potential customer base to reach, right? And again, I had more perceived value on my items because um, I'm known for other things. And, you know, so keep that in mind. And, you know, if but if you're sharing, you know, your Etsy with your new with your own network of friends, family, you know, why not give it a shot and do it for fun? See how it goes. Start small. Um, now, if you're trying to make an, a living off of it and start like literally starting a business, I, I can't really advise you there on scaling it up. But um I've read some forums, you know, and, and I can't get into like, is Etsy the correct, you know, place for it? Are there fees that I know shop, I've heard Shopify has cheaper fees. So make sure if you're going to do this, you do the research. Things could have changed since I started mine. Um, I know that Etsy has some, some stuff with, you know, I've read about like, you know, they're trying to push you into their advertising and paying for ads and the, the algorithm starts to kind of get involved and, and I th- you know, you don't want to put your in a position, yourself in a position where the an algorithm can make or break. I've seen people, you know, who on Instagram sell stuff or whatever. They're like, my stuff doesn't seem to be getting into the stream of people. And I've dealt with that too, where like um, something, you know, ornaments, tickets to a thing don't seem to be getting the views that my normal tweets would. And it's really frustrating because you're like, this is what I actually need. I don't care if my stupid tweet about poop is going to get uh, 80,000 likes. I don't care. I just want 200 people to buy tickets to this show that I'm doing, you know, it's, it's fucked up. So keep all those things in mind. Um, now there are many ways to fail in life and, and there's many ways to fail at Etsy. Um, so I'd like to share one cautionary tale from my best friend, Kim. Kim and I first met working at late night with Jimmy Fallon in 2009 And we sat together in this small windowless office that we shared with four other people. Um, This office became known to the entire staff and to us as the cave. And everyone in the cave, um, we're still close friends. We refer to ourselves as the cave, um, which I love. And anyway, Kim, Kim and I also worked on Nikki and Sarah Live and while working there, um, Kim started her own Etsy shop. And let's just say it didn't go well. Um, Here I am talking to Kim over Zoom. Sorry for the audio difference um, about her experience with Etsy. Okay. How's this? Wait, so I need to, I need to record me too, right? Uh, No, I've got it. Okay. Um, So... I'm doing this episode about my experiences with Etsy and uh, I thought of you because you're one of the only other people I know in my life personally that has an Etsy shop, but your experience with Etsy shop, uh, being an Etsy shop owner could not be more different than mine. (laughs) So I remember you telling me, this is when we were working on Nikki and Sarah live and you had the, uh, you made an Etsy shop. Yeah. So basically just to set the scenario, we, you know, it was the last week of the show mm-hmm. and everyone was pretty much wrapped out. So, you know, when you're sitting there for eight hours, there's only so much conversation you can have with your coworkers before you're just, all right, I'm going to play around. So, you know, uh, our other coworker, Liz, we mm-hmm. were like the office bullies and we were doing all these pranks <laughs> where we were the office bullies. I mean, 
You're, you, I would never classify what you were doing as bullies, but okay. <laughs> some might. I mean, we, we were like, we would steal a wallet off of someone's desk and not give it back until they like full on called security and like <laughs> had to fill out a report. Um, we, we called Corey while he was like out and told him that, you know, his apartment had burned down. Okay. I didn't know about that one. <laughs> We're just making up. We're just like filling time. So right, right. I decided one day as a joke, purely as a joke, that I would go around to people's desks and just take pictures. No, hold, hold on before. Hold on. But before you go for it, I just want to be clear. I want people to understand that like the, the staff at Nikki and Sarah, I will say, was an unusually close and 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 very fun group of people. Everybody was friends like yes i'm very proud of how we all got along so well and had so much fun so there was yes. a lot of like teasing and pranking and stuff like that so yes yes there was like i mean we were putting like peanut butter on like phones when the people would pick it no, up no i didn't know ears. about all that <laughs> you know we were the field team so once we were done for that week it was sort of like we could move on to harass our coworkers. right 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 <laughs> So the one thing that we, so basically one day it was like, all right, I'm going to start, I'm going to go around to people's desks, take pictures of like little mementos. And so it would be like, you know, a, a queen, a bobblehead of the queen of England, or it would be like a Wilco poster up, up on their wall or like mm -hmm. anything that was cute, like paperweights and just bullshit stuff. Right. You're, their little desk decorations. You were yeah. Like something that is pictures. just okay. cheap. Nothing. I mean, I guess it's sentimental as much as yeah. you can be sentimental about a bobblehead. Yeah. But so basically it was, I'm going to start an Etsy shop. I'm going to put these items up for sale, but, but, you know, like it'll be $2,000 for a bottle bobblehead of a queen. Like no one's going to pay for this. Right. I didn't realize you put the prices so high. Yeah. Well, you have to put, cause I was like, it would be so shitty if these sold and then I would have right. to deal with, Oh, I can't fulfill that order because it's a price. <laughs> Could you actually for real set up an SE shop? To the Set point up. where someone could have stumbled upon the listing and bought it from you. And then you would 100%. have been like legally obligated to like fulfill the order. <laughs> yes, it was legit. It was like, <laughs> it was called Street Meats Etsy shop, little like something like that. Yeah. Okay. Street so basically, Meats. <laughs> street Meats. Because <laughs> it was like a joke where I was yeah. called Street Meat because I ate a lot of street meat on the streets yeah. of New York when I was drunk, you know? Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, so I set up this shop and sent out an email to the staff that was basically like hey you know the show's ending and i just wanted to let you know what my future endeavors are please take a look at the shop i would really appreciate it if i remember the email you were just like i'm so proud <laughs> yeah it's like this was such a blast guys i know we're all gonna you know end up on the right side of uh, success but in the meantime here it is so of course everyone you know looked at it saw all their items being up for sale so it was like a nice haha -ha moment we end the show um months go by and i never disbanded you just forgot about shop. it i just forgot about it and never clear, went you on made an I, etsy shop as a joke a real <laughs> etsy shop as a joke filled with your co-workers items <laughs> yes yes and then and you forgot knows, about it <laughs> totally forgot about it and i guess we ended i'm trying to think when we ended like 
I guess we ended maybe in May of 2013. Uh, I want to say. I actually think right. it was late, later than that. It was like the fall of 2013. Okay. Yeah. So I guess maybe then a month, however long it happened, I get an email from the Etsy Marketplace Integrity. <laughs> and okay. it's basically <laughs> the subject is Etsy Shop Suspended. Okay. I'm like, okay, what is this? Uh, so they basically, they say, thank you for your interest in selling on Etsy. Unfortunately, it looks like the items listed in your shop don't qualify for Etsy's marketplace. Because of this, your shop has been suspended. Here's an overview of the three categories of items that can be sold on Etsy. <laughs> One, handmade by you. Handmade items are created or designed by the seller or a member of the seller shop. Two, vintage goods. The vintage category is for items that are at least 20 years old. Items in this category don't have to be handmade. And three, craft supplies. These are raw materials and tools used to make handmade goods. <laughs> we ask that you don't open other Etsy accounts. If you would like to continue on selling on Etsy, we'll need to work together to ensure that your listings meet the requirements of Etsy's marketplace. Whoa. Okay. So they didn't even know it was a joke. They were just totally like, this is not where you sell crap. Right. Whoa, Which is interesting. Snobby because bitches. Very snobby. And what's so crazy is, and then I was like, that's fine. I don't care. I don't use Etsy. You know, this is 2013. So I didn't mm -hmm. use Etsy at this point. So I just sent this email around to friends. I mean, like, haha, isn't this so funny? This is such a nice little cap about the, the shop mm -hmm. Street Meats. Street Meats is finally closed. <laughs> Street Meats is over. <laughs> we will <So> rebuild. <laughs> we will rebuild. <laughs> so basically, and I was like, I'm never going to sell. I don't make things to sell anyway. And I'm just not, I, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not going to be like, you know, what's right. You're like, who cares? You know, right. I'm like, fuck <laughs> right. this. so I don't know, like three years later, I'm, I got really into like globes. So I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, look, I got really into these like vintage globes that I wanted to find. So I found <laughs> one on Etsy that I really wanted. It was like a globe that looked like charcoal black. And it was like nailed to a, um, you know, one of those wooden shoe molds yeah very 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 great i still have it in my yeah. apartment yeah i remember but I, so i went to i went to buy it and they were like your account is suspended you are not eligible so you couldn't buy even buy anything on etsy i couldn't even buy on etsy oh my god so you know after i um sorry i'm trying to think i i sit because basically so i really wanted to buy the globe and I was like, hot items going to get sold. So I had a friend buy it for me hot just item. to like get it out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went, so then I started the process of trying to get, to be able to buy again on Etsy. I know they would never let me sell. Right. So I went through this whole process of emailing them. Yeah. I'm trying to find, I feel like so you, I had that. So you email like customer support and you're like, Hey, <laughs> Yes. Hold on. I'm trying to, I feel like while I, you're looking, um, first of all, I have to say, I feel like I have been on Etsy and just seen random shit that doesn't fit those three categories. Okay. I feel like now it's overrun with like, it's like Amazon basically. Like it's just right. crap. It has to be now. Cause it's like, 
what's so funny is, and you can even get into, you know how like Facebook will barely police their pages until yeah. they're like shamed into doing it. And finally right. you're like, oh, right. they have an integrity department and they can actually suspend right. these. It's like, way to go for Etsy though in 2013 to yeah. just be like, someone was literally sifting through every bullshit right. site. You, nobody would have reported your page. Like why, right. how do they even find it? Yeah, I guess it was, that was pretty early on in the, in the Etsy uh, craze. Right, right. Whereas now, like you're saying, anything kind of goes. Yeah, because, um, well, I, you know, now that you bring this up, I actually have been, um, had an item taken down on Etsy one time. Um, and it was at the beginning of the pandemic. I made a little cross-stitch thing of the coronavirus. Like I embroidered the actual coronavirus and it said like, I don't know what it said, but it what it didn't say like COVID nineteen on it, but in right. my description, I guess I said COVID nineteen, and they were like, "You cannot sell stuff that is taking advantage of a tragedy or something like that." It was like they thought it was offensive, and That's I was hilarious. like, or that it maybe because I think in the beginning maybe people on Etsy were trying to sell like you know hand sanitizer that wasn't like up and up and or masks i i don't remember or like and people were like don't capitalize on a tragedy i'm like i'm not it was like political whatever i made it was like remember in november like it was something like that but anyway i was like okay <laughs> that's so i don't know i guess it's yeah but i, I wanted to be like say well i want to be like how much 9-11 shit is for right. sale on this thing like are right. you serious like what and I was like, commentary is not the same as cap. I'm like, I'm selling one item for like $20. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'm so not funny. capitalizing on a tragedy, but okay. Anyway, um, I'm like, That's I'm so out funny. of work. You know, I'm a touring right. comedian who can't tour. <laughs> like, let me make I $20. Money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So you reached out to them okay i just i just found this email okay um okay so on august 10th 2015 so like two years later i wrote back to etsy and i said to whom it may concern on 11 25 13 i received an email suspending my account with etsy if possible i'd like to reopen the account so i can purchase items through the site oh my god a little background on the suspension of my account the items that were listed for sale on my page did not fall under the three guidelines for what you could, what could be sold. At the time when I started the store, it was meant as a joke for my coworkers. <laughs> one of my coworkers said, and I were bored one day and decided to play a joke on our other coworkers within our team. We rent, went around to people's desks and photographed items that were displayed on the walls. <laughs> filing cabinets, shelves, etc. Imagine being list... the person reading this on the other end. <laughs> this is great. Okay. And then then we listed those objects for sale within the Bourbon in Hand store. That's what it was called. Bourbon oh, in Hand. Oh, Bourbon in Hand, yeah. We set the prices to be astronomical so no one who searched for the item would ever pay the proposed amount. Then we sent out an email blast asking everyone to check out our new venture. It was somewhat humorous at the time, but obviously it wasn't the best decision in hindsight. 
<laughs> now with the fun behind us, there are actually a lot of <laughs> items on it. This reads like, <laughs> like a high school essay that you're presenting. <laughs> Now with the fun behind us, there are actually a lot of items on Etsy I would love to purchase. Is there a way to have my account reopened so that I may do that? I would not use it irresponsibly. It would only be used to support the local artists and sellers on the site. You're like really making a case here. Please let me know what I should do to be able to rectify this. Thank you, Kim. And she sent me... Her response back was, hello, thanks for your email. Per your request, I've gone ahead and closed your shop bourbon in hand. You are now a buyer only in this account. Please understand that electing to close this Etsy shop does not qualify you to open another Etsy shop and sell. <laughs> if you would like to regain your selling privileges on Etsy, you'll need to work through your policy violations first. Any additional Etsy accounts that you will open will be closed immediately and without notice. Regards, wow. Lauren. So thanks, Lauren. All right. So wait, <laughs> I love how she's like, you'll have to work through your policy violations. I really want to know how one does that. If your shop right. is closed, how do you work through it? <laughs> Are they like, okay, you can open a shop. We will monitor. You can sell one item and we'll observe from afar right right <laughs> but then the, then even the like any additional etsy accounts that you open will be closed immediately <laughs> god i that is you you do have to hand it to etsy because imagine if twitter or facebook was this on top of their shit how right. different well, the today, world would be <laughs> and if i was an asshole like i would be tweeting this out and being like censorship or some shit oh, you know yeah. like i can't sell <laughs> You know, right. someone else's trying, items. Yeah, exactly. They're deciding who gets to make a living and who doesn't. <laughs> right. That is... So that's kind uh, of it. God, Kim. These, this is... Oh. I just want everyone to know, this is just one of millions of Kim stories <laughs> that it was a, It was me. a process. <laughs> it was a complete process as a total joke of we are so bored right now. Well, I just love that you the, that you wrote that how you really tried to like like I, it was not a good decision. I want to support local artists. Just trying to do my part here, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, so that's a cautionary tale. You know, if you're gonna start an Etsy shop, make sure you're following the guidelines because they do not play. <laughs> they do not play. There are three. There are three guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Cam, uh, I know you just love sitting at the public library all day. Um, <laughs> I, I do. But, I love it. Um, I, I loved hearing that story because it makes me reminisce about very fun times at, yeah. at Nikki and Sarah, which I didn't realize the level of the pranking that was going on. I know that as the host, I was protected from some, I remember hearing like, Every once in a while, someone would just run down the hall, like screaming, laughing, and it would usually involve yeah. you and Liz <laughs> somehow. Yeah. It was a, it was a good time. Yeah. It was one of those, it was one of those, cause it, it's in that department. It was like, we had enough support. It was like a great staff 
yeah. show, you know, whereas most shows you're just like, I can't, we can't even see our head above the water at this point. And that yeah. show was just like so well organized. And so we could actually yeah. have fun, which I think made the product better in the end. So it's it. And they were fools. A lesson. A it lesson. Was a lesson. That yeah. is true. Look at MTV now. I guess I should. I mean, it's just, it. it's, yeah, it's ridiculousness 24 yeah. 7, literally. That's 24 hours play. a day. It's ridiculousness. I know. Yeah. Ha! Good for them. It's crazy. Good for them. <laughs> hey, they're doing it. Um, all right, Kim. Well, thank you so much. I miss you. And uh, I miss you too. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. Um, thank you everybody for listening. Happy New Year. And I'm going to try and really keep up with my, well, I guess this is a real New Year's resolution of, of posting this podcast more regularly. Um, if you have any questions, ideas, feedback, stories to share, please email me at theshafershakedown at gmail.com or you can leave me a voicemail and I might play it on the show at 213-315-3464. Thank you so much. Love you. Bye.